And now uh, we turn to our second segment, and we're l- delighted to be joined by Indy contributing editor Nicholas Powers. Nick has been a columnist for the Indy for almost 20 years. He's a professor of African-American literature and the author of three books, including his first novel, which is being released this month by Upset Press. His new novel is called Thirst, The Rich Are Vampires. Uh, Nick has also written and spoken extensively about the power of psychedelics, uh, which are enjoying a resurgence in public interest these days. Nick, uh, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's good to see you, John. Thank you. I, I almost didn't recognize who you were talking about. He, was, he seems like a really cool guy. <laughs> well, it's, it, it, it's great to have you with us. And, and we've, got, we've got a lot to, uh, I hope we can uh, uh, chop up today. Uh, but uh, for starters, I just want to take a, a couple of minutes to uh, talk about the uh, the draft uh, Supreme Court ruling that was leaked last week that has really just uh, uh, sent a lot of people reeling and, and angered, um, which would rep- repeal Roe versus Wade and uh, set the table for uh, many other terrible rulings in the future by this uh, uh, this court. Um, and we heard uh, Forrest Affront Forrest a, a few minutes ago talking about how much it meant for her to that it was her choice to make to become uh, a mother. Um, uh, you, you, your, your thoughts on uh, what uh, drives so many people, and, and frankly, a lot of them are men, to uh, want to impose these sort of uh, bans on, uh, on the bodies of women who deserve the right to make their own choices? It's bullying. They get a chance to act like the saviors of unborn children who in this, who in this frame, in this story... Uh, sorry, there's a little bit of noise background for my son. But um, what what the deep story is here is that men can pretend to be the defenders of unborn fetuses. But the reality is, is that it actually just gives them more power over women. That's actually the core pleasure. There's like the fun and fundamentalist. And that that when men enact these laws abridging women's right to choose it actually gives they think men more power over women and it winds up really 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 kind of um using a very sanctimonious but self-serving excuse of this unborn fetus that they need to protect um i'm probably gonna have to move to another place to be a little bit quieter hold on all righty well we're having a live radio moment here uh, uh nick's uh four-year-old son is uh uh, I, I getting in on the show a little bit, but uh, um, you better there now, Nick? Yeah, hopefully. I think he's he's calming down a little bit, but I may have to move to another place. But anyway, okay. that's live. That's live, folks, in COVID era. Yeah, that's uh, we got uh, live radio going on here. Uh, so uh, I, I hear you about about the bullying, and uh, I mean, with your background in in literature, are there any like works of uh, literature? Or, or cinema, for that matter, that you yeah uh, look. I mean, the thing is, to help understand like this sort of yeah. There's a false belief that abortion is primarily a women's issue. It's not. It's actually also really deeply a men's issue, and this is something that we see deep, deeply ingrained in American literature. So, if you think about The Graduate, which is a novel before it became the famous film starring Dustin Hoffman, or if you look at Run Rabbit by John Updike, and what you see over and over again is of straight men. Straight men trapped in loveless marriages, straight men trapped in loveless marriages because 
they got a woman knocked up who maybe it was just the first couple of dates. Maybe it was an affair. Maybe they didn't really love each other. And because she couldn't get an abortion or because of the shame and the guilt primarily driven by religious extremism, what that did was it trapped men in marriages and long-term relationships that they didn't really want to be in. Now, and then what that leads to is at least what you can see consistently in American literature is what I call the kind of the gilded cage of the suburbs. So when people have gone out into the suburbs or here, they can't get an abortion. Can you hear me? They can't get an abortion. And then they're trapped in these uh, sterile marriages or very abusive uh, households. But then there's really no escape. You know, they can't get a divorce um, or there's too much shame to get a divorce. And, and so for me, I think it's incredibly important to understand that abortion is not just a woman's issue. It's also a man's issue. Because as a man, you should really, really want to have a child with someone that you deeply, deeply love and that you're trying to actually have and build a family with. And it actually gives you the freedom to create that family and not be tied down by an accidental pregnancy. So there's that. And then finally, just the last thing, and this has been said over and over, but you can't say it enough, is that this is a form of class warfare on poor women. Because the other thing in American literature that's almost consistent is that middle class and upper class women and men who were faced with an unwanted pregnancy could always find an underground doctor to take care of them. And that poor women had to face uh, underground doctors who were in dirty environments, incompetent, or they couldn't even find them at all. And so the the plight of poor and working class women in a, a United States of America with no abortion rights or that there's a national abortion ban means that the poorest women are forced to deal with the heaviest financial burden of an unwanted, unplanned for child. And then in a country that has, you know, literally threadbare Medicare, threadbare childcare, threadbare daycare, um, it seems an incredible cruelty to say, we love your child from conception to birth, but after that, it's on you. It's all on you. Yeah, the, the hypocrisy uh, just leaps out there. And uh, I mean, and also, we, we could be seeing, I mean, it's very likely that these same forces would uh, try to repeal the right to contraception, uh, gay marriage, yeah. uh, anti-sodomy laws. I mean, it kind of all falls under this rubric. I mean, Alito made the point about uh, how abortion is not deeply entrenched enough in American history and traditions. I, I guess 50 years isn't enough. Uh, well, obviously, some of these other things uh, don't go back uh, any further or much further than that. Um, so it, uh, it feels like we're at this, uh, at this juncture where like, we could actually see like, fundamental freedoms being repealed instead of expanded. Um, over time, which you know has been more of the traje- trajectory in American history. Yeah, and then the political consequence of this is that when you have women and gays who are now under the pressure of the loss of freedom, then that makes it harder for women and gays to organize because now women have this extra added burden of having to worry about unwanted pregnancies. And, and then for gay and lesbians... If the anti-sodomy laws, you know, are then returned and if gay marriage is struck down, then that means a huge amount of their life has to go back into the shadows. 
And so, again, one of the things that this does just on a political, brutal political calculation is that it makes harder the life of people who are on the liberal left progressive coalition. And when life is hard, it makes it also hard to organize. So it takes away some of the potency of the political activism because so many people are now dealing with life crises after life crises after life crises. And when you're kind of jumping from emergency to emergency, it becomes really hard to be able to organize long term or medium term. So, I mean, I think that this is incredibly calculated. It's throwing red meat to the red base and, and it's doing it based on this hypocritical, hypocritical defense of unborn children. When the reality is, if you really want to stop suffering in this world, there are plenty of places to go, like with poverty, war, disease. There's so many people who are already born, who are alive, who have relationships. You could wear, you could wear a mask in the middle of a pandemic. You could wear a mask in the middle of the fucking... So to me, this is, it doesn't actually make material sense. All it does is it makes ideological sense. So it serves their ideology, but in terms of actually decreasing the amount of, of suffering in the world, it actually increases it. And that's the tragedy. Mm. Now, I, I mentioned in your introduction that you, you've been a columnist at The Independent for almost 20 years now. And, and you had a recent column in The Independent that I think a lot of people enjoyed uh, about uh, Eric Adams and re- really uh, our new mayor and uh, di- kind of dissecting why he was, became so popular enough to become mayor and, and why that popularity may uh, slip away from him. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? And you mentioned in, the, in that column that you uh, both as well. Yeah, you know, Eric Adams is... He is a, 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 a handsome and smart brother who's captured, who's captured the hearts of a lot of working class people of color in New York. And he's done it because, you know, for so long, a lot of our mayors have had a silver spoon in their mouth. And with that silver spoon, you know, the, the technocratic mayors, et cetera, and that they've been able to. <laughs> more uh, more I'm just saying, way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I know I have a little Eric Adams right here. There you go. Um, anyway, long, long story short is that the image that I had of Eric Adams was of the shell game artist, because what he does is he takes real issues of economic inequality and like a shell game artist, he puts the word race over it and he kind of just does this shell game. And I think that that's the worst aspect of Democratic Party identity politics is that they wind up hiding real issues of economic inequality underneath identity and swirling it around so that people wind up like really missing what's at stake. And so when I saw Eric Adams, he just really reminded me of a very smooth, incredibly smart, uh, very strategic, but also in a sense, he doesn't have any economic justice principles. You know, what he does is he's navigating between a, a terrified working class of color in New York who don't want uh, to be caught in the crossfire of gang warfares and gun homicides. And that's a very real, real need. But, you know, the, the damning thing about that is that it's only now that the left is beginning to address crime as a working class issue. So you see that a little bit on Jacobin and you see that a little bit on some of the other, you know, sites. People can now start talking about crime as a working class issue. But for a long time, we didn't touch it, uh, the people on the left. And I think that that was an incredible um, blind spot that we suffered from. And finally, 
you know, you know, Eric Adams really confronted, in a sense, BLM, um, because I think BLM had a deep Achilles heel. And the Achilles heel is that BLM, you know, was saying defund the police, defund the police. But again, that was an incredibly kind of um, class myopia. It was a very much a, a, something that middle class people who already enjoy a measure of safety could really buy into. And for poor New Yorkers and working class New Yorkers who have no love for the police, but would rather deal with the police than not have anyone anywhere to help try to protect them or keep them safe. And so when they heard Eric Adams, they thought, finally, we can get two opposing needs in one package. He's a black cop. He's someone who is uh, who, who, who combined both things. We can get policing with respect. He is a former black cop, which means that he can get the NYPD to keep us safe, which is what we need, but to do it with respect, which is what we need. And my fear is that that old saying, to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You can't throw police at every problem and, and imagine that they're going to solve every problem. There are just problems that are beyond throwing police at them. And that's why you really needed to have the vision of economic justice, because when he talks about, you know, upstream, these problems of gun violence start upstream, what he hardly ever really mentions is the incredible economic inequality that determines life in New York. Like if you were born in one zip code in the Bronx or in East New York, your life in many ways is already set. But if you would live in a zip code in the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side, you, your life again, you have a, a whole different trajectory. And this is literally in one city. So I think that, you know, Eric Adams to me is playing a shell game with New Yorkers. And I, I, right now he is coasting on goodwill He's coasting on the solidarity of racial identity politics. But at some point, you know, as Malcolm said, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And people are going to start to realize that, yeah, the police may have a slightly better um, behavior to them on the street because Eric Adams is looking over their shoulder. But people are still getting mass incarcerated uh, and that the streets ultimately aren't safe enough. Right. I mean, he's already being hoisted on his own petard a little bit with... uh... Uh, you know, some of the crime rates up and now sort of the, the, the panic he created around crime is uh, to some extent being directed back at him. Back at him. Exactly. And this is something that you and I talked about is that the, the, there's, there's a rise in the perception of crime, which is far greater, far outstrips the rise in actual crime. It's not to say the crime isn't rising. It is, but it's rising in very specific areas. And it's a very specific type of crime, usually gun homicides, and a lot of kind of, you know, personal violence. And it's spiking. But it's not so dramatic as it was in the, in the 1990s or early 2000s. And But what happens is the perception of crime has been inflated. And so I think Eric Adams is using that. And the last thing I will say is, in the piece, you know, kind of mentioned this, is that when those two police officers were killed in the line of duty about like a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. and there was a big, yeah, a big kind of police parade, you know, to honor them. You know, no, we don't have to be stupid or even kind of brutal or or callous. And we can say that, you know, they didn't deserve to die. They should still be alive today. Right. We can say that. And we can also say that that there is after the, the massive George Floyd protest, that there is maybe a desire by the ruling class of New York City to use the deaths of those two officers as a way of promoting law and order. You know, of making law and order seem like a very desirable thing. 
rather you know and so it kind of takes away you know the the the, the narrative away from blm and so at this point i kind of feel like blm has hit a wall and you know i don't know if they have the organization or if they have the ability to really steer in the in these kind of new waters to steer the ship in these new waters because right now you know people people working class people of color are really worried about crime and a lot of it is real some of it is being used for propaganda for the mayor um and and until BLM realizes that i think they're going to be spinning their wheels in mud okay well uh, moving on uh, you have a, a new uh novel actually your first novel out third book first novel uh can you tell us a little bit about uh thirst uh, the rich are vampires and uh what what it's about and what inspired you to write it yeah i mean so i just moved to the other room to get a little bit more peace and quiet i, I feel like my i feel like my son's like one of those like uh you know in the horror movie the monster chases the people through the house and they're <laughs> always like running from room to room and he's like Arr. yeah that's that's how i feel my son is right now um anyway long story short yeah i i uh the idea for this novel came from occupy wall street i, I was leaving zuccotti park and i was taking the a train um, back to Brooklyn. And I looked up and I saw, you know, you see those ads over people's heads, you know, it's, it's kind of like, a, and there was an empty space, right? You know, there was just an empty space. You just saw the, like the fluorescent light. And I kind of imagined a, a, an advertising there that says the rich are vampires. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have the title thirst yet. I just thought the rich are vampires. And that was obviously inspired by, you know, the 1%, the 99% rhetoric of Occupy Wall Street. Um, but the 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 dream seed of the novel lay fallow. It was, it was just in my life, and then um, it, it kind of the weather changed with Trump, and uh, with Trump, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the anger that he got elected in 2016, and then in those four years, it watered that seed of a novel, and I began to really imagine. The, the character whose name is Maz as this kind of like black Latina who's in, who goes to a, a high school in Brooklyn. And I began to imagine uh, this character who can hear vampires talk. And it turns out that the vampires were actually like the 1%. And that over the centuries, they had gotten themselves into positions of power because they wanted to start a nuclear war to get rid of humanity. And one of the ways they thought to do this was to basically enlist a real estate mogul with a weird haircut and to offer him immortality. He could be a vampire, but as long as he became president, he pressed the red button and the missiles were flying. And so she knows this from his listening to them. And so she has to find a way to stop them. And so I, I basically squeezed into this one novel, a whole bunch of, you know, Occupy Wall Street, anxiety over Trump, 1980s, you know, baby fear of nuclear war. That was a big thing in the 80s. Um, and it all came together and, and, I, and I wrote it rather quickly. And it was a hypnotic experience. I, I loved, loved writing it. And the last thing I'll say is that towards the end of the novel, I, I fell in love with the characters and I had to ask each of them how, they, how they, they wanted the novel to end. So I actually began to like talk to the characters a bit. Uh, because you know, for a novelist, sometimes the characters become so real, you almost want to ask them permission on how to end the on how to end the book. Mm. And so, where can people uh, find your novel? 
Upset Press. You know, if you if you look at Upset Press, um, it's going to be on the University of Arkansas Press and also dun, 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 Amazon. But I'm trying to steer people to Upset Press rather than Amazon because obviously, mm-hmm. who, why does Jeff Bezos need any more rocket fuel money? And uh, and it's good to support, you know, the actual presses directly. So uh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, will you be doing any uh, book launchy kind of events, uh, whether in person or? Yeah, probably right over here at Bedside. There's a couple of cafes. Uh, I may do Green Light Cafe. So I'm just going to, you know, find out a place to do a good book launch. All right. Well, people can, uh, you know, follow, follow independent Twitter and uh, our social media as well. Yeah. Let people know about that. Uh, so we, we still have a few more minutes here. And, and another area where you've been doing a lot of writing and, and you know, I think it picked up a, a lot of interest is in, in your writing about psychedelics. And um, we're, we're at a moment where there's sort of been a resurgence of interest uh, in this uh, subject. Uh, why, why have you written about psychedelics uh, for so long? And, and why do you think uh, interest is, is really uh, picking up steam now? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wrote about, so psychedelics were a part of the stories I heard of the 60s. So when I was when I was a kid, my mom and her friends who were all, you know, 68 babies, they talked about psychedelics as part of the counterculture, part of the hippie movement, part of the anti-war movement. It's just how people, you know, got down. And then so then growing up when I was in college, I that's when I tried psychedelics for the first time. And it was more for the rave scene and going out and dancing all night and sweating and you know coming home at sunrise, and getting, you know, and it was and it was more joyful and fun. But uh, for me, my use of psychedelics uh, transformed dramatically in 2002 when I took um, LSD and MDMA, what's called candy flipping at Burning Man. And it was a year after 2001. So I, I had come back to New York for graduate school in August 2001. So September happens. And that whole year, the city is shaking in fear. After 9-11. After 9-11, after, after the towers uh, were struck and 3,000 people died in front of us. And so when I went out into the desert, um, that was the first time that I used psychedelics in a therapeutic healing way. And they really helped me cry and laugh and dance and scream out a lot of those emotions from September 11th. So when I came back, even though I didn't really do psychedelics that consistently, the, the position of psychedelics in my life changed. And so when I would go to Burning Man or festivals, and occasionally I would do psychedelics. I had, you know, deeply healing experiences. And so I wrote about that in The Ground Below Zero, which was my second book. And then, you know, people in the psychedelic scene who know me asked for me to, to do a talk at a, at a uh, conference called Horizons, which is a psychedelic conference. So in 2017, I gave a talk and it was called... Um, uh, uh, Black bodies and rainbow, no, rainbow bodies and black masks, kind of like a pun on, you know, uh, Black Skins, White Mask by Frantz Fanon. And that talk really talked about the intersection of race and class in psychedelics. And so that talk really went very well. And it kind of was viral. And a lot of people saw it in the community. And so that kind of began uh, me writing about psychedelics in a professional way. And so it's been a couple of years that I've, you know, read a lot of more books, and it's oddly enough, I've, I've read more books, but I haven't done psychedelics because, you know, I'm a dad, so I can't, you know, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> but, you know, what it's, what, but I think in some ways that's a saving grace because then it forced me not to rely on personal experience 
but to really interview people, to talk with people about all the, the varied ways, the variegated ways that people do psychedelics, from fun to healing to whimsical to comedic, all the different emotions you can feel on it. And to read a lot of the, the traditional books on psychedelics, everything from Allen Ginsberg's How to more recent books, um, you know, on, on McKenna and that, that Terrence McKenna, you know, the psychedelic history, such as like the new book, you know, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan to a book about the Grateful Dead called Heads, but then also to mix it with um, uh, Carl Hart's, you know, you know, many books now on the drug war, you know, which is like Chasing Liberty or High Price. And, you know, and then also looking at psychoanalysis and looking at the history of trauma and, you know, psychological therapy. So it's like putting all of these things together has become, you know, for me, a, a great education. And I'm very grateful. You know, I'm very, very grateful. And how uh, would you say that the sort of the psychedelic moment, uh, this uh, upsurge in interest in psychedelics where we see a number of states uh, starting to legalize uh, uh, magic mushrooms and maybe some other psychedelics in certain uh, municipalities as well, where, where there's definitely more interest in it. How, how does this moment compare to, say, the, the late 60s when there was obviously a... Yeah, the late, the late, the late 60s, psychedelics um, had actually existed for quite a while. Like, you know, I think it was like, I forgot, 1943, Albert Hoffman invented LSD, but there's always been psychedelics, natural psychedelics, like ayahuasca, Abigail, um, you know, West Africa. You know, I mean, every society has had psychedelics. Uh, in ancient Rome, during the Saturnalia, they had, you know, you know, different forms of psychedelics. It wasn't just alcohol. But the thing about 68 that was specific was that most psychedelics done in a society are done to keep the status quo. And this is actually true for indigenous traditions. In other words, indigenous communities have specific theological beliefs about gods and spirits and, and their relationship to the earth and also gender roles and economies. And so when they take psychedelics, it's not to upset the indigenous tradition. It's actually as a status quo to keep it going. And, and most psychedelics are, were done in that way, right? And then, yeah, psilocybin with mushrooms, magic mushrooms as well with different, you know, societies. But what happens with 1968, it was one of the few times that psychedelics were used by a counterculture to actually disturb the status quo and to actually stop the American war machine. So unlike in a lot of indigenous traditions, unlike in a lot of hierarchical societies, you know, beforehand, in 1968, psychedelics was used as part of a counterculture to stop the American war machine and to really stop the American materialism. And because of that, there, there was a pushback, a, a, a deep drug war criminalization of psychedelics, which became with like reefer madness, and then LSD was going to make you go crazy. So psychedelics were seen as the doorway to insanity, that they would destroy your mind. And so that became the narrative. And, and then, then how finally, how is it being? Treated? Well, that's the thing is that uh, organizations, I would say the lead organization is MAPS, right? You know, multidisciplinary, um, you know, yeah, multiple study for psychedelics, psychedelic studies. And, you know, that's the lead organization. But there have been so many kind of mid to small level researchers who have been saying psychedelics are incredibly good at healing trauma. And so psychedelics began to be medicalized and began to be seen as a healing agent for people suffering from PTSD, like soldiers, cops, P 
people of childhood abuse, whether it's sexual or mental abuse. And because psychedelics have been used successfully in, in traditional therapy, so now it's psychedelic, psychedelic therapy. Now people are coming out of the psychedelic closet because the old drug war narrative has been broken down. Now, the other thing is that BLM actually had a hand in that because when, when uh, Black Lives Matters are you know, criticizing the drug war and over-policing, they're also, as a side effect, we're also criticizing the drug war propaganda and saying, like, why are so many Black and Latino men being shipped off to prison for low amounts of drugs when they actually use uh, drugs in, at less quantity than white people do? And so we have know, about 30 seconds Wow. Yeah, so basically BLM had a side effect in helping dismantle drug war rhetoric. And now the new frame of psychedelics as a medicine was is what it's allowing for the psychedelic renaissance now. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. But Nicholas Powers, contributing editor at The Independent, author of Thirst, The Richer Vampires, and a writer about psychedelics and many other things. But thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. And, and on behalf of my son... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yes, uh, always uh, good to hear from him as well. Uh, so uh, that uh, just about does it for tonight's show. We want to thank uh, our board operator, Reggie Johnson, and this show will be rebroadcast tomorrow morning from 5 to 6 a.m. We'll be back at the same time next week. I'll be rejoined by my co-host, Amir Gagarian. And uh, one more reminder, support Community Radio 212-209-2950 or go to give number 2 wbaiorg and our outro uh, music song here, our musical outro, is Childhood by Hamza El Din. Goodbye for now.